0: Well, it's uh, good to uh, see, quote-unquote, all of you. I want to begin in verse 27 of chapter 12. Uh, as you remember, uh, the first part of chapter 12 is largely devoted to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And we looked especially at John's strong emphasis on that in fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. 9. The shepherd king has entered his capital on a, on a, the fall of a donkey on 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 a, a young donkey, and I mean all of that that has it's an enormously important fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So um, we're now ready to begin a very difficult section. Uh, not so much verse twenty-seven um, through thirty-six, but thirty-seven uh, through the end is a very difficult passage. So. We'll get into that in just a second, so I hope you're all with me Hey, Jim. I had a
1: question before um we were talking about these uh, <clears throat> this the Greeks and uh they um they like the form of worship is that correct and but they didn't really adopt the faith uh I'm referencing uh chapter um,
0: What's well, verse verse twenty of yeah. chapter uh, twenty? 12.
1: Yeah, can you comment on that
0: twenty verse twenty? Um, yes. I, um, I'm trying to understand your question. Um, the Greeks here, and what I, I read from the ESV translation, they're just bringing that term into. Uh, the uh, English translation. Uh, it, it's an ethnic word, Greeks, but what it really is referring to is non-Jews, Gentiles. Yeah. Okay. And so um, they have come to Jerusalem because, you know, that's where this event is occurring, entry and all that. They've come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, which will be the end of the week. And they want to interview Jesus. The I think the best way to understand this, there is another uh, phrase that's used in the book of Acts. And uh, I think Paul uses it one time as well. But the, the, the phrase is God-fearers. These would be Gentiles who um, have come to worship Yahweh and whether they all are people of faith or not, whether they all are genuine converts to Judaism, because, I mean, you can't be talking about converting to Christianity. That would be the, you, Christ hasn't died yet. The death, burial, and yeah, resurrection has occurred. Right. So th- this was not uncommon. As a matter of fact, the, the, the New Testament references a lot of different people from the Roman centurion and Capernaum, to the the Roman official at at Joppa that Peter uh, talks with in Acts 10 and so on, who are Gentiles, non-Jews, who convert. The New Testament calls them proselytes. So they convert to Judaism. They are genuinely converted to Judaism, genuinely people of faith. And um, then what follows often is they then accept that Jesus is the Messiah, And so, presumably, these Greeks that are referenced in verse 20 are in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. We don't know where they're from geographically, but the point is they're non-Greek Jews, They're, they're, they're Gentiles, and they are interested in interviewing Jesus. So they know the teachings of the Old Testament, they know the teachings of Judaism, and to interview Jesus, it's going to be about, are you the Messiah? are you the one that's promised and and talked about in the Old Testament prophecies? And so then the Lord uses that in verse 23 to talk about the Son of Man being glorified, etc., which, of course, um, is referring to his death, burial, and resurrection. And using that phrase, Son of Man, is referencing Daniel 7.13. The Bible here, on this particular instance, does not comment on the genuineness of their faith or not. It doesn't comment on that. And all we are are doing, and this is all Luke is doing here, or I'm sorry, all John is doing here, is introducing us to the fact that a lot of non-Jewish people are interested in investigating whether Jesus is genuinely the Messiah or not. So that they are in Jerusalem, that they are in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, that they are non-Jews, it means they're proselytes, they're God-fearers, and they are interested in exactly the same question a lot of other uh, people in Judaism, mostly Jews, are interested in, is this man the Messiah? And they want to interview him, and yet that, that... is not the point that John is making here. He's just showing a lot of people are interested in this question. Is he the Messiah? And that's, does that kind of get at the point of your question?
1: Yeah. It, it, my my footnote says that uh, these Greeks that, uh, were attracted to Judaism, worship in their synagogues and attended the feast, but they were not proselytes.
0: Well, I, I, I don't know if, I don't know what study Bible you're using. I don't know if you can, I don't know if you can reach that conclusion based on this paragraph. Okay. The main reason I'm saying is the paragraph does not comment on, John does not comment on the genuineness of their faith or their lack of faith. It just says they want to talk to Jesus and Jesus then uses that as we just quickly looked at verse 23 and following as a, an opportunity to explain again, this is what I'm about to do. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up. So uh, I, I don't, I wouldn't agree with the editors of that study Bible that they can comment on the genuineness of their faith. I don't think we have enough information. Maybe they, maybe they're not. We just, we, I don't think we have enough information there to make that judgment. But you know, a lot of people disagreed with me before, so maybe I'm wrong. But that would be my comment on that. All right, let's dig into verse 27 then of chapter 12. Okay, triumphal entry has occurred and all the things we talked about last week. So now, this is quite remarkable, and it's quite unique. Because John now, and, and, and probably John heard this, he witnessed this, he saw this. And Jesus now speaks in verse 27. And this is Jesus speaking. This isn't John speaking. This is Jesus speaking. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And I commented on that last week that we're troubled there is also in, in Greek. And it's really a hard word to translate satisfactorily into English. Um, stirred up, unsettled, um, troubled there's a there's degree of anxiety, there's a degree of tension. Now, that, that makes sense. That's not hard to understand that, because Jesus knows what's going to happen to him that Friday. We're in Passion Week now. The triumphal entry has occurred. We're in Holy Week or Passion Week or whatever label you use to describe that week. Jesus is only days away from the cross. He knows it. He knows what's going to happen. He's the omniscient God, the God-man. And so John is, is revealing to us what Jesus is saying. My heart is unsettled, it's stirred up. It's, it's there's a degree of anxiety, a degree of tension, I'm, I'm troubled. It isn't so much he's worried, but it's just that he realizes what's going to happen as the God-man. So then naturally he yes, what should I say? So I say to the Father, save me from this hour? I don't want to go through with this. Lord, isn't there some other thing we can do? Heavenly Father? No. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. So Jesus is circling back, despite my tarasso, my unsettledness and, and degree of anxiety and tension, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that I am emotionally, understandably feeling. I know why I'm here. So then this prayer... Father, glorify your name. That's a prayer. Out of all of this unsettledness comes not, I don't want to do this, comes this prayer. Father, glorify your name. Then, only the third time in Christ's public ministry, the Father audibly speaks from heaven. What were the other two times? At his baptism and at the transfiguration. Both of those, well, they're in several of the accounts in the the Gospels, but in Matthew, you have a full account of both. Matthew 3 is his baptism. Matthew 17 is the fullest account we have of the transfiguration. In both of those instances, the Father audibly spoke. Here he audibly speaks. What does he say? I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. What's the it referring to? His name. I have glorified my name, I will glorify my name again. So the father speaks audibly. Jesus' prayer, Father, glorify your name. The father responds, I have and I will do it again. The crowd, and that term is um, nebulous, we don't know how many that is, but it's a presumably a fairly good-sized crowd, stood there and heard it said that it was thundered. Some said it's thunder. Others said an angel has spoken. Jesus then responded, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. That's really, to be honest with you, that's kind of a remarkable statement from the mouth of Jesus. He doesn't need the encouragement. This is given for a revelation. This is given for an audible confirmation for those seeing and hearing this for them. So this is revelatory. It's a witness. And then Jesus in verse 31 begins to interpret what the father just said. So verse 31 is Jesus Christ's interpretation of what the father just audibly said. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Let me stop there. Jesus says four quite extraordinary things here. That interpret what the father meant when he said, I have glorified my name, the it is referring to his name, and I will glorify it, my name again. How so? Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, his son, what will that event, which will bring glory to the name of God, what will that involve? Number one, the judgment of this world, the judgment on sin of this world, because what, and this is in Isaiah chapter 53, the great servant song prophecy of, of the book of Isaiah, that the father will pour out his wrath on the son. He will judge his son. So the judgment of this world is, the father is about to judge, but he's going to pour out his wrath on his son. Secondly, he says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Of whom is this speaking? Satan. Second Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is declared to be the god of this age. Jesus Christ refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. And remember, we've talked about this many, many times. The term world, when Jesus uses it, when John uses it in in his gospel, as well as in the book of Revelation, it's cosmos, but it's used figuratively. It's used metaphorically. World is that system that stands opposed to God, is in rebellion against God over which Satan rules. Another phrase that describes it. This kingdom, this world is the kingdom of darkness. In Colossians 1.13, the Apostle Paul talks about it in that way. And so, secondly, the ruler of this world be cast out. The cross is going to be the defeat of Satan. It is going to seal the doom of Satan. It is going to be the beginning of the end of the rebellion against God. That Satan hatched and carried out. A third of the angels joined him. From Genesis three, tragically, the human race joined him. So, what what is being stated by "I will glorify my name" uh, is at the cross, when he judges his son for the sin of the world, when he defeats once for all Satan, and then he adds in verse thirty two when I am lifted up from the earth, that not only refers to his resurrection, it also refers to his ascension. Because remember, the ascension of Jesus Christ is the triumph of Jesus Christ. The Father exalts him, sits him at his right hand, fulfilling Psalm 110 verse 1, so that the Son is now the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Lord of the universe. And then I will draw all people to myself because that's what Pentecost is all about. That is what the Acts one commission, begin in Jerusalem, go to Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the earth. He will begin to draw all people. This will lead to taking the gospel of the kingdom to the uttermost parts of the earth. John then comments, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to d- die, the crucifixion being lifted up. So th- this is really, this is quite wonderful, because Jesus, in, in these two, ver- three verses, 31 through 33, interprets what the Father just said, and confirms his remarkable mission, that is, Christ's remarkable mission, the mission of salvation, the mission of being judged for the sin of the world, the mission of defeating, once for all, overcoming the chief rebel, Satan, and his false kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. And that this will launch the new covenant community of Jesus, which is drawing all people to himself. And John... uh, Yes? Yes.
1: Do you do you think um, that it was it was pretty important, Jim, for the disciples to hear all of this too for their future missions ahead of them? Well,
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, he for as far as the disciples are concerned, this isn't the first time he said things like this, but now he's encapsulating it in, in four quick short staccato like pithy statements. And that this isn't this is confirming for them what really is going on here. But as you know, they're still all going to desert him when when he goes to the cross. He's going to die alone. But that's why it is the resurrection and then the coming of the Holy Spirit and all the stuff that's in those early chapters of Acts that just tie all this together. And these guys who heard Jesus say that here and other times, they're going to go out and change the world. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's confirming, confirmatory, confirmatory for them, but it's revelatory and a witness for everybody else. This is one of those extraordinary events in the public ministry of Jesus. And, And what I mean by that is where the father audibly speaks from heaven and then it is interpreted. What does that mean? Why is this so important? And that's uh, what Christ just did for everybody. It's it's really a it's a wonderful passage. Thank now, verse third, okay, verse thirty-four. Now, what John is interested in: how did the people respond to what he just said? And again, he uses the term. So the crowd. So, the crowd now understood. Well, I shouldn't say understood. Heard what Jesus said as he interpreted what the Father just said, whether they thought it was thunder, or an angel speaking, or whatever. So they, they, in a sense, they ask a good question. They make a good statement. We have heard from the law, this is verse 34, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Now remember, Christ is the Greek for Messiah. So you could say we have read in our law, we've heard from our law, our teachers have explained to us that Messiah is going to remain forever. That's not a false statement. That's not an inaccurate statement, because throughout the Old Testament prophecies, again and again and again, it's stated the eternal, perpetual, ongoing rule and reign and existence of the Messiah. You could just do one thing Go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, 13, 14, 15, 16, where David is called the Davidic covenant is promised an eternal throne an eternal dynasty and eternal kingdom. And you go to Daniel chapter seven, verse 13, one like the son of man comes up to the ancient of days and receives kingdom authority, dominion, and so on. That's talking about eternal perpetual rule. So they're saying the law has said to us, and the law is the summary phrase for the entire Old Testament, that the Messiah is going to remain forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And so they're keying in on that question, that seems a statement that Jesus is saying as he's interpreting what the Father's saying. This doesn't square with what we know in the Old Testament prophecies about the eternal kingdom, eternal dominion, eternal throne, eternal rule, eternal existence of the Messiah. What do you mean by that? And who is the Son of Man? That's Daniel 7.13. Who is it? Jesus' answer to me is frustrating. It really is. To me, this is a great opportunity for him to forthrightly state it. But his answer is an indirect to a degree, ambiguous. Listen to what he says, verse 35 and 36. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So Jesus answers the question, but in a very indirect way, almost ambiguous way, because they have to accept one proposition, and that proposition is what Jesus had said much earlier in his public ministry, I am the light of the world. And the light is among you for a little while longer. I'm the light of the world. I'm going to be here a little longer. While you have the light, walk in it, lest darkness overturn. Darkness, the kingdom of Satan, the opposite of everything that God stands for. Satan is tearing everything apart. Jesus is going to put everything back together. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. Are you children of darkness? Are you children of light? While you have the light, i.e. me, believe in the light i.e., me, that you may become sons of light, children of God, with the promise of eternal life. So, although his answer is indirect and to a degree ambiguous, at the same time, it's very clear if you accept the proposition, as Jesus had declared several times, I am the light of the world. So, who is the Son of Man? I am this is Jesus speaking. I am, I'm the light of the world, and it is incumbent upon you who heard the Father, who heard my interpretation, to respond in faith. Believe in the light. And so in that sense, I said frustration to just use a little bit of exaggeration there. It isn't frustrating. It actually is very clear He's speaking metaphorically, he's speaking figuratively, but it's very clear. You have a choice. Are you going to remain children of darkness, or are you going to become children of light, sons of light? And how do you do that? By believing in me. So again, Jesus is issuing a call to faith. He's issuing a call, believe in me. And when you do, as he has said several times, over and over again, you will become the sons of light. You will become son, and you can—it's gender neutral. So, children, children of light, children of the kingdom, children of the heavenly Father—all those different things that he's talked about throughout his public ministry—and so the the, the 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 wonderful nature of verse 30, uh, 27 through thirty-six is you move from Jesus' tension-filled, unsettled, uh, troubled spirit, the Father speaking, Jesus interpreting, and another instance of Christ's call to a response of faith. Believe in me. You have this is the, intent, this is the intent, an intent, faith, and, and belief. Yes, please. Yeah, um...
1: That just caused caused them to not believe.
0: Um, that kind of that kind of tripped them up, didn't it? Well, what you're going to see, and that's unfortunately what we have to deal with next, in the following verses, is Jesus begins to ask and answer a question, why have so many not responded in faith? They keep going back to the Old Testament, don't they? they he does. That's just carved in their, their minds. I'm sorry. Causing what was that, Woody? I didn't. They just they cannot they cannot release that. They can't they can't believe what Jesus
1: is saying because of the Old Testament, uh, and uh, what was said back
0: there about him.
1: You know, I just I, I well, read ahead, so. Well, you so, did. And that's, didn't you're
0: you're you're quoting there from Isaiah six uh, in verse forty and following. Yes. And what I, want to, I want to get into that, because that I've entitled this in your notes, in, in the note packet, this section, A Theology of Unbelief. And this is theology, this is a very difficult paragraph that we're about to study. So let me make sure, before we get into that, is everybody clear on what is going on in verse 30, 27 through 36? Where Doctor speaks and then Jesus interprets that. It's quite a and it's just, again a call to faith. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Fred.
1: Dr. Eichmann. Yeah. Uh so I'm I'm th- I'm wondering if uh the the disbelief uh in verse thirty-seven may come from the first part of verse thirty six says, while you have the light and they they had asked earlier if if uh, if this was uh uh, if the messiah was going to be there forever
0: well yeah i mean i think G- jesus is zeroing in on what the fundamental issue and problem is for these folks they're right. still not sure he is a messiah right and they're sure not they're still not certain that he really is the son of man prophesied in daniel 713 so they there's still a rather significant there's still rather significant signs of unbelief here. And that's why John then helps us to see that in the next paragraph. And so Fred and I had us all set up. I was just a nice segue to be able to move right into this next paragraph. This is a very important section, but it's a very difficult section. That's why I've called this a theology unbelief. This can be asked of the first century, with all of these folks who saw Jesus, heard Jesus teach, saw him do his messianic miracles, it can refer to today. Now, what I want to do is I want to read this. This is difficult, and it, I mean, it really is, but I want to read, starting in the middle of verse 36, and then read to verse 43, Now, I have a couple of charts I want to throw up on the screen when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them, which is not an uncommon thing for Christ to do. Remember, now he's in Jerusalem. This is Passover week. Uh, This is Holy week, right before Passover, so we're not sure where he went. But verse 37, John now, this is John speaking, and what happens is John now gives, using the Old Testament, gives an interpretation, if you will, lays out a theology. Why are so many people rejecting Jesus? That was very relevant in AD 33. We're in March of AD 33, right before the crucifixion on April the 3rd, AD 33. So, I mean, this is a very critical moment, and John is just stepping back, The dialogue between Jesus and the crowds in Jerusalem is over. Jesus has departed. He's hiding from the crowds. We don't know where he is, but either he went over the mountain, Mount of Olives, and Bethany or whatever, but he's he's not with the crowd. And so John steps back. I want to pose and try to answer this question. Why are so many people rejecting Jesus? Many are accepting him but many are not. Probably in terms of the total Jewish population in the Eastern Mediterranean world at that time, most are rejecting him. Certainly the leadership is rejecting him. So John is asking that question. And so verse 37, I want to just read this through, through the end of the paragraph, verse 43. Though he had done so many signs before them, remember signs, that's messianic signs, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And I quote from Isaiah 53:1: 1. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 38, 39. Therefore, they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, turn, and I will heal them. He's quoting from Isaiah 6.10. Isaiah said these things, Isaiah 53.1, Isaiah 6.10, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. If you go back to Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah, he's being inaugurated as the prophet, so to speak, and he is in the throne room of God, this incredible vision. He sees the enthroned God, sees all his glory, and speaks of this. Now, what John is doing as he's quoting these passages of Isaiah, Isaiah, is he saw the enthroned, glorified Jesus because the description of Isaiah 6 matches perfectly the description of Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration in John in Matthew chapter 17, and the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, when John sees the glorified Jesus Christ. And so all John is saying is, Isaiah saw Jesus. Nevertheless, Many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from the men more than the glory that comes from God. All right. Now, why are so many people rejecting Jesus in the first century? I'm putting on this slide here, and you can look at it, my railroad tracks. If you, when we were back at First National, I would draw this on a board, but I can't do it. So I'm going to use one of my PowerPoint slides. This is what I want you to see. What John is doing in answering the question, why are so many rejecting Jesus? It is that interplay and tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. The railroad tracks. The right-hand side of the railroad track is divine sovereignty. The left-hand side of the railroad track is human responsibility. And I've used this in the book of Romans. So now I'm, I'm using it also here in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, verse 37, 38, which we just read, the focus is on the responsibility, the responsible freedom of the people who saw the miracles of Jesus, who heard Jesus teach. Look at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. That is the responsible freedom of these Jews in Galilee, in Judea. They heard Jesus teach. They saw him do his miracles. These were the Messianic signs. And he says... That's just what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? Lord, Yahweh, who has believed what he heard from us, Father, Son, what we've revealed, to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. They have incredible revelation from us. All of my words that I've taught, all my messianic miracles that I've done, they still did not believe. That is their responsible choice. They willfully, intentionally rejected Jesus, despite all the evidence. Then John shifts to the other side of the road track, the focus on divine sovereignty. Therefore, they could not believe. And he quotes from Isaiah 6.10. That he is God. He's blinded their eyes, hardened their heart. That's to see where their eyes understand with their heart and turn and I'll heal them. This is one of those passages because Isaiah chapter 6 is the commissioning of Isaiah to be the prophet to Israel. And God says, I'm going to send you out. You're going to preach to Israel in the north. You're going to preach to, to, to Judah in the south. But I want to tell you, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to hear what you say. They're not going to believe. They're not going to respond. Because... I have hardened their heart, just like God hardened Pharaoh's heart for his greater glory. And so in putting it in human terms, they had crossed that threshold. God had given them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to respond to the words of Jesus, to the messianic works of Jesus, Their hearts were so hard that God, then for his greater glory, blinds their eyes and hardens their heart. So you have both, both statements here. You have the responsible freedom of the people of Israel who saw the Messianic signs, heard the Messianic teachings, but did not believe, still did not believe. Over and over and over again they had the evidence. Therefore, God hardened their heart for his greater purposes, his greater glory. And that, again, this this tension that you are feeling right now, at least I'm hoping you're feeling it if you've been listening to what I've been saying, and listening and reading what John says, trying to put this together. This is the tension that you and I feel as finite creatures, trying to understand the connection between the freedom, responsible freedom of the human being and the divine sovereignty of almighty God. It's the same tension you feel when you're in the upper room with Jesus. And he says, tonight, one of you is going to betray me according to the scriptures. Which side of the railroad track is that? The right-hand side, the divine sovereignty side, semicolon. But woe to that man. It would be better if he were never born. What's that? That's responsible freedom. The left-hand side of the road. Judas is accountable for his dastardly betrayal of Jesus Christ. But that dastardly betrayal of Jesus Christ was part of the divine plan. Jim, I have a That's question. why, let me, let me comment, let me finish this. That's why when you when you take this and you think of it then in terms of eternity, that's this little diagram. When we get to heaven, these two railroad tracks are going to come together. Like you stand, if you ever go down to, you know, one of Union Pacific's railroad tracks, and you're standing, on you see the two parallel tracks. We look up into the, the distance, you see on the horizon, they come together. But as long as you're walking that track, they're parallel. And so what John is doing is he is stating to us a major theological truth. That major theological truth is a theology of unbelief involve people having opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to respond to the witness and revelation of who Jesus is, whether it's in 2020 or in A.D. 33. But there comes a point where that rejection and hardening to the witness of Christ, God then will further blind, further harden for greater purposes. He has the sovereign right as the sovereign God to do that. And so John is just stating, that's why I've called this in your notes, a theology of unbelief. It's the same thing that happened to Pharaoh when you go all the way back to Exodus 7, 8, 9, 10, and so on. Pharaoh hardens his heart against God, first plague. Second plague, hardens his heart against God. Third plague, hardens his heart against God. And then he crosses that threshold that only God knows, and the text now states, and God hardened his heart, God hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. It's that interplay which only the sovereign, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent God can understand it. that interplay between the responsible freedom of the human being, they still did not believe and the sovereign working of God in blinding and hardening hearts for a greater purpose and greater glory. All right, now, yeah, um,
1: I had a question regarding that. Um, you know, uh, in uh, in the court system, there's a scale of justice that, that balances out, and um, but God isn't blind, obviously, and and He sees all. And then we have this level uh, when we're doing construction work, okay, to get something level, you know, to so that it is totally level. And, and the, the question I'm asking here is when we think of the entire mass of humanity and what you've just spoken about, are, are we saying then, is this what the scriptures are declaring to us? and your rails, that everyone has an equal level opportunity to come to Jesus Christ in this post-crucifixion world, that everyone has an equal opportunity to come to Christ and with the center or knowledge of who he is in his total revelation.
0: I'm not sure I am not sure I'm comfortable with quite saying it the way you would say it. I would I would put it this way. God has revealed himself in four ways. And the word witness is used in each one. Mm -hmm. First is of course his creation. One thinks Mm -hmm. of Romans 1 18 through 34 Psalm 19. Second is human conscience, Romans 2, 14 and following, where the term is used. Conscience is a witness to God's revelation. Three is God's moral law, which is, you know, among many other things, including the Ten Commandments, etc. You can add to that the whole concept of natural law. And then fourth is, of course, Jesus Christ. I would argue from based on scripture and the authority of scripture that every human being has an opportunity to respond to those revelations. Uh, Creation is the most obvious. Human conscience is the most obvious. But the principle that you also see in Scripture is that as a person responds to a witness of God, for example, creation, God sends additional revelation. And that's what missions is all about. That's what faith-based missions is all about. But my point is, this is what Paul says in Romans 1, that the, the bottom line fact is... No one is going to stand before God at the great white throne judgment and say, I never knew about you. I never knew you existed. And God has the evidence that they have had multiple opportunities to respond. And a person who has only the response, only the revelation, the witness of God's creation and human conscience, because every human being has those two. No human being can ever say, I don't have those two, because that's the whole point of Romans 1 and 2. No one will ever stand before God and said, I never knew about you. I never knew anything about you. And God will say, oh, yes, you did. And so it's how you respond to those. Whether then you respond, I want to know more. I, I want to understand more. Or your, your, your blindness and hardness of heart continues. Then God, and this is all John is doing in quoting these passages, John says then God gets to a point like he did with Pharaoh, where then mm-hmm. he blinds yeah. and hardens heart for greater glory and greater purposes yeah thank you that's as far as i can go with that this is yeah, extremely Thanks. difficult this is extremely difficult to talk about this using human language especially for americans who always always routinely say that's not fair that's not fair i mean i've had I, i've Talked about this in all kinds of settings, both for believers and unbelievers, but even believers scratch their head and say, Well, that's not fair. You see, (laughs) it's how you put this in human terms. Somehow you've got to anticipate that's going to occur. That's not fair, and how you're going to help people get over that. The other thing that is crystal clear in the Bible is you will never be able to charge God with being unjust or unfair. God, and this is what John is doing here, it has been their continual, they still, look Look again at the words of verse 37, they still did not believe. Revelation after revelation, witness after witness, sign miracle after sign miracle, word after word that Christ spoke, on and on, and they still did not believe. John says, therefore, God blinds their eyes, hardens their hearts. Just like I just I'm always amazed that Isaiah is commissioned to be a prophet, and God says, Oh, by the way, Isaiah, nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody is going to pay any attention to you. But you are going to be the one that is going to warn them that if they do not Give up their idolatry. I will send them into exile. Well, anyway. Good. Now, your assignment for your thought paper is explain theologically, verse 37 through 41. I can't wait to read your papers. That's got to be at least 1,500 words, double-spaced, 12 font. Everybody's laughing because you know I don't mean it. All right, let's look at one more thing about this paragraph. What time is it? No, we're in good shape. Yet John says in verse 42, nevertheless, strong adversative contrast, nevertheless, many even of the authority believed. Now, I read from the ESV translation, uh, many of the authorities, we're, we're not so sure all that he means by that because he could mean the elders. Remember, the chief priests, elders, scribes, one of those different labels. The elders would be the civil rulers of Jewish society. Uh, the chief priests are the priestly families. They're in the hierarchy of Israel. The scribes were the interpreters of the law who would sit with and work with the Pharisees. Could be some of the Sadducees. I would be a little more skeptical about that. Could be. Could be some of the Pharisees as well. So all he's saying is, there are people that are responding, even among the top echelon. You and I know two of them, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. There are extra biblical sources that tell us of others, but anyway, but why didn't they publicly declare declare for Jesus? Why didn't they come out and say, I'm an advocate for Jesus as Messiah, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Because what the Pharisees did was they kicked them out of the synagogue. We saw that happen. Remember the the blind man that Jesus or the um uh the, the you know, blind man that Jesus healed on, on the Sabbath a couple chapters ago, and they interrogated his parents, and his parents didn't really cooperate and they kicked him out of the synagogue. They kicked the blind man out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The fear of ostracism, the fear of being shunned, the fear of being kicked out of the synagogue was greater than the fear of God. And so you see, this isn't commenting on the genuineness or lack of genuineness of their faith. John is commenting they believed. But they're not publicly standing with Jesus. Jesus will die alone because many were had a greater fear of human leaders, i.e. in this case the Pharisees, than they did of God. And so that ends it. That's it. And so this theology of unbelief, which is what I like to call this section, is laying out something that is in other parts of the Bible. You think again of Romans 9 and 10, If you go back to my chart, Romans 9, in 9, 10, 11, Paul is dealing with why didn't my people accept Christ? Romans 9 focuses on God's sovereignty. Romans 10 focuses on the responsible freedom. And that's why I use that railroad track chart in teaching Romans. All right, now if I don't have any questions, I'm moving on. I don't have any questions, so I'm moving on. Verse 44 through the end of this chapter, verse 50, is a summary of the public ministry of Jesus. It is now coming to a close. Because as we move into John 13, 14, 15, 16, we're going to have the upper room discourse. Jesus is in the upper room with the guys. This is the 12 right before, it's Thursday, right before Good Friday, but we're not quite there yet. So what John does is he gives a summary. This is a summary of Christ's public ministry. What has he been doing for the three, little over three years or so? Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. How many times has he said that in the book of John? Over and over and over again. I have come into the world as light. I am the light of the world. So whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the world, did not come to judge the world, but to save it. John 3:17. The one who rejects me does not receive my words as a judge. The word which I have spoken will judge him on the last day. At the great white throne judgment, the books will be opened. And all the many, 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 many opportunities you had to respond. Your words will judge yourself. That's the evidence of your condemnation. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself, has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Again, 44 through 50 is a summary of the public ministry of Jesus. And this summarizes what John has just over and over and over again. These themes have been integrated and woven together through the gospel account of the preceding 12 chapters. Now, chapter 13, we are shifting to the upper room. We're shifting to what is called the upper room discourse. But this begins with an absolutely astonishing miracle of Jesus Christ. And I call it a miracle because of what he does, how he does it, and his purposes for doing it. He washes the disciples' feet. Now, to introduce this, I wanna go to an, another slide. Whoops. Here it is. If you look at this with me, and I'll I'll more than likely show this next week again, but I I want you to understand as we start this very familiar narrative of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. I want you to have a background here. I want you to have a background that other parts of Scripture provide for us, and then I want you to understand the two primary attitudes that Jesus is manifesting here. And then I want you to understand the three purposes for this remarkable act of washing the feet of the disciples.
1: Yeah, Michael, okay. I, don't I don't know that that slide opened up. Yeah. What? I don't know that that slide opened up. I'm just seeing your, your notes there, uh,
0: uh, downloads, documents, pictures, backup, download, music, so on and so forth. Well, and you're not, not seeing... All right, you're not seeing the slide, then?
1: No, we're not seeing the slide.
0: No, we're not. All right. All right. Well, I'll show that next week because it, for some reason, it's not, uh, it's not coming up. So, I'll I'll have it up next week. But let me just introduce this, and then we'll, um, then we'll get back to the the the, uh, the stuff for next week. Jesus um, Jesus is about to Jesus is about to wash the disciples' feet. And you I think know this that in the ancient world, and this is centuries before Christ and centuries after Christ, um, you would go into a, a person's house and because you know there were sandals, it was dirty and dusty and so on the very first thing as a mark of hospitality was the servants of the home would wash your feet. And so they have all gathered. They, meaning the 12 and Jesus have gathered in the upper room and they are about to eat the Passover meal. But Jesus, Jesus takes off his robe, puts a towel around his waist and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Which would have been, I mean, for these men, they've seen Jesus do many, 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 many things. But to see him do this, this would have baffled them. It, It would have been an unbelievable thing for them to see and witness. And Jesus, as he does it, is going to explain to them why he's doing what he's doing. Jesus is acting out Isaiah 53. He's acting out the servant of Yahweh, which is the theme of Isaiah 53. He is the servant of God, serving his people. And in acting out this incredible It's an incredible demonstration and manifestation of servanthood. He is also doing something else. He's also acting out what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself. This is speaking of Jesus. He surrendered his glory as the Son of God, took on the form of man, a morphe of man, and in obedience to the Father served, and died. So it is instructive that the the very first part of the uh, upper room discourse is an acted out sermon of Jesus, an acted out object of Jesus. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, washing the feet of the disciples. And as we will uh, throw all this up next week, and we'll, we'll start doing it, But this displays the love that Jesus has. It displays and models servanthood. And it becomes this cleansing, this washing, a symbol of salvation. That's what he's going to say to Peter. This is a symbol of your sins being washed away. As I'm washing your feet... Now, from the dirt and grime of walking the streets and roads of Judea, I am using this as a symbol of washing away your sins, cleansing your sins, as the suffering servant of Yahweh, Isaiah 53. And so it, it finally illustrates, indeed manifests, two important attitudes, an attitude of self-denial. That's what Philippians 2 uh, five through eleven teaches us in obedience to the heavenly Father, and so this this act of Jesus in washing the disciples' feet, which is such a familiar story. I mean, even non Christians who don't read the Bible have heard about this. But the, the, to to understand first of all why Jesus is doing it, secondly how the disciples are interpreting what he's doing. And then thirdly, what do we learn from this? How do we apply this to our lives? And so this is what I want to do then for next week. It'll probably take us the entire hour to work our way through these verses in chapter 13 of the Gospel of John that detail for us this very familiar story of Christ washing the disciples' feet. So if you have an opportunity, um, you, know, you know, I can't order you to do this, but if you have an opportunity, read through this portion of chapter 13 a couple of times. Just note, note a little bit of what I've been saying. The attitudes Jesus is manifesting, what, 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 what is he saying as Peter says, wash all of me, Lord, and, and he, he, he just challenges that. What, what does he mean when he's saying what he says to Peter? And then to to ask yourself that question, which we'll address next week. How do I apply this to my life in 2020? What, what does this mean for me 2,000 years later? So that'll set us up, hopefully, Lord willing, for a really good discussion about this very familiar uh, part of Christ's last days before the crucifixion uh, and uh, the washing of the disciples' feet. Okay, got it? You be ready? Very good. Thank you, Jim. All right. Everybody has got it on mute, so I don't know if you heard what I said or not. But we'll be ready. I hope you'll be ready and, and maybe uh, read over that chapter a couple of times. We heard
1: it. Thanks, Jim.
0: All right. Amen. Yes, please. Amen. Oh, amen. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Let me pray for you, and, and then I'll let you go here. Father, we've, uh, we've had a, a rich discussion, an important section in John chapter 12. Um, some uh, difficult passages there. Lord, I hope with the chart that I threw up as well as our discussion that the men have a fairly good overview of what really is going on there. John is trying to explain in, in answering the question, why have so many people rejected Jesus? The evidence is so compelling and so clear. And that, that answer that he gives, as he quotes from Isaiah, is, is relevant for us today that people see the witness, hear the evidence, evaluate it, and instead of believing, they harden their heart. And that is just all around us. Lord, only you through your Holy Spirit can change the direction of a person's life, change their mind and heart about Christ. Our business is to present the message, to be a witness, to share when we have opportunities, But you're the one who's in charge of the response of people. You change people. We don't. We're just the instrument. So John just helps us to get the 100,000-foot view of unbelief. It is that curious, tension-filled mixture of responsible freedom of the human being and your sovereignty. So, Lord, we have to step back and trust you with all of us. And just remember, we are called to be faithful witnesses. The results are up to you. So be with these men and all the different different things they do and all the responsibilities they may have. Help them to be good stewards. Help them to be faithful stewards. And we'll trust each one of them to you. May they be strong men of faith, very important, committed men of God who represent you well. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. See you next week. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great week. Fantastic. Bye.